In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What a glorious difference we have from Good Friday when we observe the change that has come over the world. The worst and most terrible day in history is replaced by the greatest. And we see the tomb with the body of Jesus lying dead within it. And there it lies for three days. But the soul of Jesus, his spirit, is in another place. For death is the separation of the body and the soul. And at the moment of death, our Lord's soul has gone to a very glorious and happy place. It is not the happiest place it could be. It is what we call the limbo of the fathers. It is the dwelling place where all of those souls, good souls who have died in union with God from the dawn of creation, have gone waiting, waiting for the promise of the Messiah, waiting to be liberated. And so it is that Jesus has descended into that place. And there he has met, first of all, his first parents, Adam and Eve. They have been waiting a long time. And around them spread out all of their children, all the prophets and the patriarchs. There is Moses and Noah and Jonah. There are the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah. There, of course, he will also find St. Joseph, his own foster father, and his cousin, St. John the Baptist. And all of them crowd around him, close to the consoling presence, the wonderful light that they have waited for all these years. Because Jesus has descended to the gates of hell itself, and Satan cowers in fear, and he comes in in consolation to those who have waited all these long centuries. And then, in one sudden moment, he brings them forward from their imprisonment and opens to them the gates of heaven. That is a glorious and stunning moment. It comes, of course, after three long days so that the prophecies can be fulfilled. But in one instant, the soul of Jesus then passes from the limbo of the fathers to the tomb itself and is reunited with the body. That is the moment of the resurrection. Soul and body come together again in a glorious and extraordinary moment. And the little sepulchre there is filled with light. And the angels who've been keeping watch are astonished and delighted. And the body that rises from the tomb is the body of Jesus and no other. But it also has added qualities. The qualities of what we call a glorified body. Glorified body is like ours, but with certain qualities restored. Qualities that the theologians call uh, agility, the ability to move from one place to another instantly. Uh, clarity, a certain uh, brilliance, a shining quality, impassivity, etc. This is why it is that in the appearances afterwards, uh, those who see our Lord don't seem quite to recognize him, as if he's a little bit out of focus or something. That moment of the resurrection is the most astonishing moment in human history. Our Lord himself had raised other people from the dead on occasion. Such an a fact was not unknown. But the grave had always reclaimed those people. It will never reclaim him. 
and none of those people had ever risen by their own power. But he is the master of life and death. He, he said, has power to lay down his life and to take it up again. There is no burden upon him, there is no limit, there is no qualification of his strength and his majesty and his magnificence whatsoever. And so it is that on that morning he passes through the very stone of the tomb itself. He doesn't even have to roll away the rock. And where does he go? The Bible does not recall this. But ancient tradition of the church, confirmed over and over again by the fathers, and then reconfirmed in the revelations to various saints down the ages, always maintains that our Lord on that morning went first of all to his blessed mother. And that she whose sorrow was greater than that of any other person was consoled by his presence. And that he stayed with her for some time. Nobody was ever more loyal, followed more sincerely, and more worthily deserved consolation than she. And she, of course, is the person he loved most in this world. Although she's mentioned in all the other accounts in the Bible of the crucifixion, of waiting with the apostles later on, of being there at Pentecost, she's not mentioned here on this day, for that moment is so intimate between the two of them and so precious. And all of the other appearances that which she makes that day are made in order that witness might be given to the ages. This one is not necessary. But so it is from that moment onwards that the Lord appears to one after another and first to the holy women who've come to him to attend to him in that morning, to St. Mary Magdalene and her companions, Salome and Mary the mother of James. Mary Magdalene has been the first there with the other women. She's seen what was in the tomb. She went off to report it to the apostles. And then, out of an excess of devotion and compassion and worry, she came back to check, and she received the wonderful confirmation. Our Lord called her by name, and she understood at last who it was. And after those holy women, the disciples, downcast and depressed, fleeing the city on their way to Emmaus, and finally that evening, the apostles themselves gathered in the upper room in fear and depression themselves. And so, point by point, in ever-radiating circles, our Lord sends out the word of the great moment of his resurrection. And the joy we cannot imagine, and the change in attitude of the apostles, is beyond belief and beyond description. But that is not the meaning of Easter. A great encouragement it is, but not such a great thing that we would recall it ever afterwards. If we want to really understand Easter we must return for a moment to limbo. We must return to that place where, for so many countless centuries, for millennia, the souls of the just had been confined. The Bible speaks of this sometimes as hell. Limbo is uh, an English word coming from the Latin word limbus, and limbus is a fringe, and it's not the fringe of heaven. But there they had been, In this place of confinement, a place untroubled by physical pain, but still lacking the joy of union that 
Adam and Eve certainly once had had. What had their life been in the Garden of Eden, in that first paradise, where God had provided for every need? And how terrible was the original sin that they committed? We can never quite understand that because we lack that degree of intimacy and because we bear within our flesh the consequences of their own sin. But in some way, they who had no inclination to sin and no want for anything in that paradise were lured away from intimacy with God, an intimacy close, so close that the Bible says that God walked with them in the cool of the evening. All of that they gave up, a mad and an extraordinary exchange, seduced, of course, by the ancient enemy, the serpent, the devil himself. And just as parents pass on all their qualities to their children, and just as we've received everything else of human nature from Adam and Eve, so we received this terrible chain. They bound themselves and they bound us ever afterwards. They introduced a weakness into human nature, which they had not come into the world with, a weakness of an inclination to sin. How well we know it. We bear it even now. Even after the resurrection, we still bear it. But it wasn't theirs to begin with. And it wasn't natural to human nature. And what is the consequence of it? Well, the Bible tells us that too. The wages of sin is death. And the realm of this earth is the realm of death. And the master of this world is the devil. And so it was that the human race found itself chained to him and under his dominion, hopeless and lost, with an inclination ever downwards. And yet God in his compassion did not leave men and women in this condition. For we were given what the angels were not, a second chance, an opportunity for a Messiah, for a Redeemer who would bring us back from that fallen state to the state that he had originally intended for us, that intimacy where he walked in the garden in paradise with his children. And so it was that the long centuries passed. What must have been the guilt of Adam and Eve there in limbo as they saw the place fill up with their own children and considered the folly of their own actions? And yet at last the day came, long waited for, and the eagerness of those in limbo we can, we can imagine until eventually the chain is broken and a great price is paid. And yet see the ease with which it is done. Look at Good Friday, the arduousness, the agony, the labor that goes through it, because that is the work of man. And then on Easter Sunday, it is all accomplished in an instant and almost effortlessly, because this is the act of God. And the power and the majesty and the magnificence of God are beyond anything imagined, even by the devil himself. Easter Sunday has broken that chain of death forever. And the souls are freed from their fate which had tied them to this world, to death. And what was death? What is death to 
a faithless world today. For the Jews, it was a descent into the earth. It was a hopeless existence. For others who have no religious belief, it seems to be some sort of extinction, an annihilation. But that is not a natural instinct in the human race. There is an innate sense that we continue beyond the grave. But where? Before, there was little hope. The Elysian fields of the, of the pagans was as much as they could hope for. But now, what a wonderful, glorious future is opened before us. Our true home, at last, is within reach. And what will it be like? The new creation God has promised us, with the new glorified bodies, perfect and burnish the souls that he has already created in this world. We don't cease to exist when we die. We don't all dissolve into a great sort of mass of, of spirit. We remain the individuals that we were in this world, but purified and better than we were, so that those we knew in this world we will continue to know in the next, but they will be more lovable, and for all the reasons that we loved them in this world. But on the other hand, all of the faults that they had will be burned away by the fires of purgatory, so that people will be wonderful to know, and the glorious meeting that we will have with them one day will be the most joyful and extraordinary and, of course, punctuated by that knowledge that it will never end. In this world, we can never, as I said, feel completely at home because we were not made for it. Here, we're like a man walking underwater, but moving towards the shore. We can't see very much. Our limbs are held back by the heaviness of the water. Eventually, we break the surface, and our eyes open for the first time, and we see wonderful things. And for the first time we can move freely. Even if there were no hell to avoid, heaven would be worth moving every moment of our life to attain. Easter is the feast of heaven itself. Easter is the gift from God that will never pass away. Every joy in this world, no matter how wonderful it is, every consolation that we receive, Every grace that God pours out upon us is tinged always with the knowledge that it must come to an end. But in heaven, there is no end. There is no chain. There is no barrier anymore. This is the gift that God has brought to us. He brought it to those holy souls on the first Easter day. And from that day onwards, the gates of heaven have been open to those who love him and to those whom he has saved. There is no way we can ever thank him so much. There is no feast that can ever contain this happiness. Our life from now on is one of eternal joy, and in all the difficulties of this world, that note can bring us through. Let it encourage us, let it buoy us along, and let us never forget it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.